Um, thank you for being here today. I've been working on this and praying about this and talking to people about this. Um, seemed like forever. Um, I, uh, uh, um, let me see here. Turk, would you shut that door for me, brother, sir? Thank you. Or somebody, whoever, thank you. Uh, Whitney, I wanted to thank you and Brian, too, for Wednesday night uh, for the mission deal. That was great. It was great. The men loved it. And uh, uh, Gracie's not in here, but Jerry, you can, yeah, you can thank Gracie for me. Dead gum Gracie Bowden, she walks into that little chapel with, and she, 75 um, fellas, and she just stands up there like Amy Grant, and uh, uh, I, I guess she's still singing. I don't know that, that sort of dates me, I guess. But anyway, she stands up there and sings, and you'd literally have thought uh, Amy Grant was singing. It was just, it was great. It was great. And it, they clapped and cheered and hooted and hollered, and they just loved it. And uh, so anyway, thank y'all and all of you that came and helped us uh, serve and, and um, prepare the food and clean up and wipe the tables off and mop the floors and all that. Thank y'all. That, that was a good that did my heart good. Shirley and I were down in Heiko, Texas last weekend doing a parenting conference at a little church. Uh, Heiko's about two hours south of uh, Fort Worth. And the only thing that their claim to fame is that uh, Billy the Kid was from Heiko, Texas. And Bonnie and Clyde hid there in the funeral home one time. Now, I couldn't make that up, so, you know, you believe it or not, that's, that's neither here nor there, but that's what they told us. So anyway, we were down there, and Tommy, thank you for preaching last weekend. I'm uh, grateful for that. <laughs> He's not bothering a soul, so don't you worry about that. A um, few days ago, well, I guess about a week ago, I was reading through the book of Nehemiah, uh, and some of you have been reading with me through that little book. We're through it now. And it's well, you know, you've heard me say this a thousand times, that I, you know, you read these passages, these stories, these, the lives of these people, and you, I've read them hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of times. And then all of a sudden, one morning, you just are sitting there reading the exact same, I'm sitting in the same chair, same time of day, same person doing the reading, same Bible in my lap with pages flying <laughs> everywhere, same marker and pen in my hand, and it's just like, uh, where did this come from? Who, who uh, added this to the Bible? I've never seen this before. This has never meant anything to me before. And uh, I got to chapters 8 and 9 of the little book of Nehemiah. And uh, God really spoke to me. And he, he just did a work, a fresh work in my life. And I just was hoping and praying. And I've been hoping and praying that God would do that uh, in all of our lives this morning. Just real quick, the background. Uh, the book of Nehemiah is set in the context that the people of God... Um, 
had been taken into captivity by the, well, by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians uh, and had been basically made slaves for 70 years. And um, through a miraculous turn of events, God put it on the hearts of uh, the, uh, uh, the Persian leadership to send the, the, the Jewish people back to the promised land. And when they got back to the promised land, there, when I tell you there's nothing there, there is nothing there. There, wasn't a, there weren't two stones on top of each other. There weren't two pieces of wood on top of each other. Everything had been made empty and desolate. Uh, and through, over a long period of time and through much sacrifice and difficulty, uh, the Israelites um, built a wall. It was a pitiful little wall, but they built a wall around the city of Jerusalem. And then they built a little pitiful temple. Uh, pitiful being in comparison to the Solomon temple that had been there earlier. Uh, and they built this wall and they built this temple. And uh, when they were done, the people of God decided to gather together in Jerusalem. Because uh, they really didn't know what to do next. They had left Babylon and Persia, if you will, and had come home, and they knew what to do next. we got to build a wall. We need a wall. Uh, we, we, the, if we don't have a wall, we have no protection. We have no defense. The enemy nations will just come back in and wipe us off, so we need a wall. And we need a temple. We need a, a place where we can worship God. We got into this mess because we stopped worshiping God. We don't want to do it again. So we need a wall and we need a temple. And they built the wall and they built the temple. Well, they're done. And they don't know what to do next. And so they gather and Ezra, uh, Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, who were the leaders of the people and had led them back to the promised land, uh, they come to these people and they said, Hey, uh, we need some direction. And uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they gathered all the people in Jerusalem and they uh, took the word of God, uh, the, the law of Moses, and they began to read it to the people. And uh, that's, that's enough background. You'll, you, you'll see where I'm going. Uh, so let me, let, me, uh, let me read this to you. I'm just going to read a little bit of, the, of, the, of, the, of, Ezra, of, Ezra, uh, of Ezra, of Nehemiah 8 and 9. You just follow along. This is sort of a, I'm skipping parts of it because there's a lot of long names that don't matter. But you'll get the gist of the story. Before the ten people gathered in Jerusalem with a unified purpose before the temple of God. The unified purpose was they gathered to know what was next. What are we supposed to do next? And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the law, the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel to obey. So Ezra brought out God's law before the people, which included all the men and women and children who were old enough to understand. And he stood from early morning till noon and read aloud to every, read aloud the, the word of God to everyone who could understand. 
And all God's people listened closely to God's law. Ezra stood in full view of the people on a high platform that had been made for this occasion. To his right and his left stood all of Israel's religious and governmental leaders. I skipped all those names. And when they saw him open, when the people of God saw Ezra open the book of God, the book of Moses, they all stood to their feet. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. And then they bowed and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And the Levites instructed the people in God's law while everyone remained still or quiet. And they read from God's law and clearly explained what was being read. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said, Don't mourn and weep on a day like this. Today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had been weeping as they listened to God's law. Very important uh, idea there that the people of God had been, as they listened to the words of, Mo of Moses that Ezra read to them when he would speak about certain things that related to their personal lives, they began to weep in sorrow, in repentance over what they were hearing. This is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people have been wounded feet listen to God's law. And Nehemiah said, go and celebrate with an abundant feast and share gifts of food with people who have nothing to eat. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Later the people assembled again, and this time they fasted, and they dressed in burlap, and they sprinkled dust on their heads, and they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. And they stood in place for three hours while the word of God was read. And then for three more hours they confessed their sins and they worshipped the Lord. The Levites stood and cried out loudly to the Lord their God. And then the Levite leaders said to the people, Stand and praise the Lord for your God. I'm sorry, stand and praise the Lord your God. The Levites stood and cried out loudly to the Lord their God. And then the Levite leaders said to the people, Stand and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And then they prayed, May your glorious name be praised, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise, for only you are the Lord. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to finish reading that, that, those two chapters. But if you, if you read those two chapters over the last couple of days, what you noticed, I hope, was that Nehemiah and Ezra go into great detail about God's activities as they relate to the people of Israel. They wanted the people of Israel to remember 
the things that God had done for them from his first encounter with Abraham through the lives of the patriarchs down in Egypt getting them out of Egypt leading him through the wilderness giving them manna and water and all the things that he did giving them the Ten Commandments and then leading them into the promised land Ezra and Nehemiah wanted the people of God to remember what God had done for them and when I read those two chapters guys and I got to be honest with you, I've read them many, many times over the last eight or nine or ten days. I noticed six ideas, six thoughts, if you will, uh, that that I think are important. Uh, that I want, I just want to mention them to you really quickly. Number one, I noticed that there was in the within the people of God. A spirit of expectancy. The people gathered and they said, read to us the word of God. They weren't just coming out of habit or duty. They wanted to hear a word from God. They expected God to speak. Number two, I noticed that there was a spirit of yieldedness. Where are or uh, uh, they opened their lives up. They, they gathered in faith and in humility. And they, they don't say this, but they demonstrated it. God, when you speak, what you say, I'll do. I noticed that because they're... Ezra and Nehemiah didn't say, you're a bunch of bad rats. Y'all ought to be so ashamed and sorry for your sins. He just, or they just read the words of God to the people. And the people, as they heard God's words spoken, they responded with such weeping, such sorrow, such remorse, that Ezra and Nehemiah had to say, stop, stop, stop. God's doing a great work. Don't be sad right now. If you're going to be sad, be sad later. Don't be sad right now. This is a day for celebration. We're celebrating the goodness of God. We're celebrating this wall that God helped us bring, uh, build. And we're celebrating this temple that God uh, helped us build. We're, we're free again. We're no longer slaves. Let's celebrate. And so I take that to mean that the people, when they heard what God was saying to them, and when God began to point out in their lives specific things that were wrong, they responded with sorrow, with shame, with humiliation, with repentance. They responded. They, I, I find it very, uh, well, leave it there. Third thing I noticed is that there was a spirit of culpability. And what I mean by that is they owned their own wrong I did not read in those two chapters and I read carefully multiple times to try to find it I did not hear one second of blame I didn't read one second of excuse nobody was making excuses nobody was blaming anybody else nobody was saying but you don't understand why no 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 what you see is the people of God Hearing what God is saying to them about their lives. And all they can do is say, God, what you say is true. 
You have described my life and I own what you say. They're not blaming their parents. They're not blaming their mate. They're not blaming their rat children. They're not blaming the United States government or the United States president. They're not blaming the Russians. They're not blaming their communities or their failed public schools or their crummy bosses and jobs. They're not blaming anybody. They hear what God is saying to them and they own it. Third, uh, the fourth thing I notice is they worship. They, they do own their sin, but it quickly changes. And Nehemiah and Ezra had to help them with this transition. But there's a transition very quickly from you've done wrong and you need to own it to Let's focus on what God has done for us and let's praise Him and thank Him. They're not sitting around for extended periods of time like an, nothing wrong with AA. In fact, I thank God for AA. So I'm not, I'm not, really I shouldn't use that as an example. But they're not just sitting around just seeing who can tell each other a worse sin story. You think you're a rat and you've done wrong? Well, I can one-up you. I'll tell you. And they, they, No, they do own their sin. And they are sorry for it. But very quickly, the overwhelming majority of these two gatherings, the time is used to thank and worship God for the good things that He has done for them. Their focus is not on their sin, their focus is on the goodness of God. Fifth thing I noticed was that powerful visual, and I've mentioned it already, but that powerful visual idea, that image of this, if you were observing, if you were on the wall of Jerusalem watching, what you would have seen was a people of God gathering and there was this blending of worship and praise with sorrow and regret and repentance. And it was all blended together. They were both important. They were both a part of the people of God moving from being distant from God, not having a good relationship with God, moving into this healthy, strong, good relationship with God, and it, and it took both. It took sorrow over their sin and ownership of their sin. But it also took, I'm, I'm thankful, I'm rejoicing in what God has done for me. The end result. If you read the end of the story, what, this, what happens is that the people of God leave this this gathering. And they're restored. They're healed. They're, they're, they're encouraged. They're, their relationship with God is renewed. They feel strong. They feel comforted. They feel excited. They feel optimistic. They, they are walking in a fresh confidence that I am right with God. Not just that God loves them. They knew that. 
They said it a bunch of times in those two chapters. Not just that they had been blessed by God. They knew that. They had seen that. Not just that they were a part of the covenant of God that Abraham, their ancestor, had established. They knew that. They say all that. But if you read these two chapters, what these people walk away with is not just an intellectual, academic agreement with what was true. They walked away emotionally feeling at peace that I am right with God. God and me are good. We're good. Not I'm good and don't need God. Or lucky you, God, you've got me. No, I don't mean that kind of baloney. I just mean that they. if you read these two chapters, you see the people of God leaving this, this moment in their history, this moment in their journey, and they are right with God. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago um, that the Bible teaches us Repeatedly, from beginning to end, the importance of us regularly confessing our sins to God. And we did a lesson on that. Um, taking time regularly and responding to what God's and then responding to what we believe God is showing us with a confession of sin. Let me read to you a couple of verses to just remind you. 1 Corinthians 11. I read these to you three weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 11. But if we examine our lives, we won't be judged by God. Lamentations 3. Let us examine our ways and return to God and declare that we have sinned and rebelled. 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see if your faith is real and test yourselves for you know that Jesus is with you. Galatians 6, pay careful attention to your own works and experience the satisfaction of a job well done. Hebrews 3, make sure that your own heart isn't evil and unbelieving and that, and that turns you away from God. And then David shows us, he exemplifies a man who understood the importance of not just hearing that he has done wrong, but he understands the importance of responding to God once he's heard that. Psalm 51 says, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love and great compassion. Blot out my sins. Wash me clean of my guilt and purify me from my sins. And then you've all read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where Nathan confronts David with his sin and David declares, I have sinned against God. And then Nathan responds, Yes, David, you have sinned, but God has forgiven you. And then in 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And I just wanted to challenge us today. And I'm, I'm first in line. Nobody, nobody uh, likes the idea of confessing sin. I see the confession of my sin in a very negative light. I bet you do too. Uh, nobody likes to be reminded of the, the wrong things that we've said or thought or done. Um, nobody likes owning those things. But I just want you to, to consider with me today that while I see the confession of my sin to God or to one of you as a very unpleasant uh, negative thing, I just want you to see that God views it very differently. God views times when we confess our sins to Him as a very precious gift. Um, he, he actually created confession of sin as a tool that I can use to experience cleansing, to experience rightness with Him, to, to leave that moment, whether it's in church or whether it's in my car or it's early in the morning when I'm reading my Bible, I can walk out of the presence of God, if you will, feeling right with Him. The, the mom who had the little girl and uh, she was getting, uh, got her all ready for church and put her all in this beautiful little frilly uh, dress and I uh, said, now look, don't get, don't get dirty. I'm going to run get ready for church myself and then we'll go to church. And the little girl went out in the backyard. It rained the night before. Started swinging on the swing sack. You know what happened? Uh, the, under the swing, there was, a, there, was a mud, there was dirt and it became mud and there was a little mud hole. She slipped and fell in the mud hole and was covered in mud. And she came in the house and she said, Mom, you told me not to get dirty, and I'm sorry that I did. I, I didn't mean I fell in the mud and I disobeyed you. And I just want you to know I'm sorry. And her mom grabbed her by the arm and said, Well, come on, you're gonna go to church just like you are. Any mamas in here say, Well, that's not right. That, that's not the way that works. You know, as a mom, you and dads, because we're behind the, you know, we're 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 a couple of steps behind. Um, well, that, well, I'll show you, I'll teach you a lesson. No mama would do that. Any good, loving mom would say, baby, I wish you hadn't have done it. I asked you not to do it. I had good reason to ask you not to do it. You did it. Come on. We're going to go in. We're going to take a quick bath. We're going to get a new dress. We're going to put it on you. And then we'll go to church. That's what good mamas do. It, there's no punishment. There's no shame. There's no rebuke. The, the moment when that little girl transitioned from being muddy to clean, that was not a punishment that that mom was making her go through. It was a gift from the mama to show the little girl, I don't want you to go out into life today covered in mud. I want you to go out into life today clean and good and, and proud of how you are and who you are. And I want you to enter into life feeling that, feeling good about yourself. Not hiding behind the, the, the door at church because you don't want to see anybody uh, uh, looking at your muddy dress. That's why God creates confession. 
not to shame us or rebuke us, but because he delights in us experiencing that cleansing, that freedom. It's like that leper in the Old Testament, Naaman. You know, he comes, his soldier from Aram, and he comes down to Israel sort of on a lark because some little girl had told him that there was this guy down there who could, could heal him of leprosy. And the, uh, the prophet comes to the door and just says to the, sort of shouts at the door, tell that guy to go jump in the Jordan River seven times and he'll be cleaned of his leprosy. The man, the leper, uh, 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 Naaman gets mad and says, well, you know, I thought he'd come out and wave his arm over me and say a prayer and throw some anointing oil on me and, you know, and do all this stuff. And all he did was tell me to go jump in the lake seven times. And uh, he gets mad and huffs off. He's heading back home. I can jump. I can go and get in a river in my own country. I don't have to jump in some stupid Israelite river. And one of his servants says, well, sir, you know, whatever you want to do, your business, you're the boss. But what if he'd have told you something hard to do? Climb a mountain, fight a giant, swim across an ocean. What wouldn't you have done to change your life forever? What would you say, I won't do that to get rid of your leprosy? And Naaman looked at the servant and said, well, you're right. There's nothing I wouldn't have done. I'd do anything to get rid of this. He says, well, I'll tell you what. Let's go back and get in that river. That was not so. Naaman took it as shaming, embarrassing, rebuking. And God said, dude, I'll make you clean. I'll make you clean. I want you to go back to your wife and hug her rather than her standing at a distance. I want you to go back to your kids and pick them up in your arm and set them on your lap and read them a story instead of having to speak to them around a corner. That's what confession was designed by God to accomplish. Confession of sin is a tool that God has provided to allow us to experience cleansing and restoration. The question is, do I utilize the tool? It's there. It's in my toolbox, in my closet. Or in my case, it's in my Bible, under my little table, sitting by my chair. It's right there. But do I utilize it? Acts chapter 3 says, repent of your sins that you may be forgiven and experience times of refreshing. The psalmist says in 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart and examine me and see if there's anything offensive or wicked in my life and lead me into a path of life. I do wrong. I disobey. I say things I shouldn't say. I look at things I ought not look at. I think things I ought not think. I treat my wife in ways that I, I shouldn't do. I get as mattered, I get madder in Hades at y'all, and I know that's wrong. And if I'm not careful, rather than that driving me to God, 
it drives me away from God. As if, if I don't say, if I don't own it, if I don't confess my sin to God, God won't know about it. You know, I remember when you was a kid, you didn't tell your parents. They wouldn't know. But you know, that doesn't work with God. Just because we don't tell him that we've done wrong, he still knows. He knows I'm broken. He knows I'm a screw-up. He knows I fail. And it makes him sad when I choose to do that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not blowing that off. It angers God when I choose to do wrong because it causes me and those in my circle of life Great pain and sorrow and shame. And God doesn't like that happening to people that he loves. But the thing that is significant for me to remember, to remind myself, is that he is ready, he's excited, he's waiting for me to come and say, God, I lied. God, I lusted. God, I got angry. God, I was mean-spirited and irritable. Uh, God, I did wrong and I'm sorry. He wants to restore me back. I mean, I was thinking about the prodigal son. I'll give you a question to ponder. You know the story of the prodigal son. Here's my question. When did the father... Forgive the son. When did the father make a conscious choice to defend that boy? I'm thinking it was the day he was born. The, the, the little moment where the boy came back and fell on the ground and said, Father, I have sinned against God and against you and I'm sorry. That was for the boy. That wasn't for... The, that didn't go... The, the Bible doesn't say, when the father heard the boy's words, his hard, angry heart melted. And he chose... To forgive that rat of a son when the boy deserved to be banished. No. I'm thinking the father decided to forgive that boy the day he was born. And guess what? I'm thinking that God decided that same thing for me and maybe you. I decided to forgive you before time began. So these, these times of confession... They're not really for God as much as they're for us. Confession is humbling. It's humiliating. But doesn't the Bible say a number of times it's when we humble ourselves that's when we crack the door so that God can pour into us grace Confession removes the walls and the weights and the thieves that rob us of abundant life. David said in Psalm 32, How blessed are people whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, 
and against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent about my sin, my bones decayed and I groaned all day long. But I acknowledged my sin. I didn't hide my iniquity. I confessed my wrongdoing. And you forgave my guilt. One last thought before we do what we're going to do next. One last thought before we're going to do what we were going to do next. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> Not the sharpest knives I've got in my drawer, but anyway, they, they are. But don't they look nice? They're just, just such a blessing. <laughs> and they sing pretty. Um, um, we're going we're gonna to have a moment couple of moments where I, I want us just in the quiet in the quiet of your seat there's not going this isn't a show this isn't a look at me everybody think about me and focus on this isn't a show this is between you and God and so for a few minutes in the quietness of this moment I want you to just think about maybe some things that either you haven't thought about or you've gotten really good like I am. I'm an expert at shoving things in drawers and shutting them real tight and hoping if I keep them there long enough, someday when I open that drawer, they'll be gone. Thing is, they're not gone. They're still there. They were just waiting. Waiting to accuse. Waiting to shame. Waiting to um, attack. Waiting to hold me in bondage again. So I want us just to take a moment and do what those, those precious people of God did in Nehemiah. They listened to the word of God. And then they responded by owning what they heard God say. Confessing it as sin to God. Asking for forgiveness. Accepting that forgiveness. And thanking God that things are right again. You know for some of us. Accepting God's forgiveness. Is as difficult as asking for God's forgiveness. The reason that's hard for some of us is because I project onto God how I deal with other people's sin. And I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe God will hold it over my head. Maybe God will use it against me someday. Maybe God will think less of me. That's not the way God does, but that's how I think He does. One thing, one thought before we begin. Just remember, there's two voices going to be speaking into your mind today, into your heart today. The voice of God and the voice of the accuser. The Bible says that there is an accuser, a real life accuser. He has different names, but we'll just call him the devil today. And he's going to be accusing. Remember that God never 
speaks to us generally. He never speaks to us about our sin generally. You're a rat. You're bad. God never says you are. God always speaks very specifically. You have done. You told a lie yesterday. He never calls you a liar. You lusted yesterday. You're depraved. He'll say, yeah, you lusted yesterday, Larry. But he never calls me depraved. He'll say, Colin, you stole that from the grocery store without paying for it. Not really. He never calls you a thief. God speaks specifically about our actions. He never labels us. Well, actually, he does label us. But he labels us with things we want. You're accepted. You're adopted. You're forgiven. You're righteous. You're full of... You see the difference. You understand the difference. If it's specific, related to an action, that's probably the Holy Spirit. If it's you're a failure, you're a loser, you, that's not the voice. I don't know what voice that is because I don't see the devil behind every bush. But I'm telling you, it's not the voice of God. Okay, real quickly. Um, Psalm 6, 1 through 4. Who's got that one for me? Would you read that, please, loud and clear? Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Thank you. Let's first of all deal with our minds. Sins that tend to prevail in our minds. Thoughts of superiority, lust, prejudice, retaliation, impatience, jealousy, irritation, disloyalty, not returning good for evil, being easily provoked, judging, breaking your promises. Having to win every time and be right. Other people's wrong more than you focus on your own. 1 Peter 3 says, don't return evil for evil, insult for insult. Psalm 15 says, who will dwell upon the mountain of God? The one who swears to his own hurt. That means he doesn't break promises. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Don't you realize that you are God's temple? God's spirit lives within you. So be holy as God is holy. And Colossians 3, Forgive others as God has forgiven you. And 1 Samuel 16, Don't look at the outward appearance of others. Be like me and look at their hearts. God speaking to you today? One of those sins God bring into your mind and heart? 
How about the sins of our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our hands, our feet? What we watch, what we listen to, the conversations that we have with others, lying, gossiping, speaking about people in a dishonoring way, criticizing, complaining, rehearsing other people's failures, speaking words that are vulgar and hurtful, stealing. You know, I can honestly tell you, I don't steal. I don't steal money. But I'll steal your reputation. I'll steal me to do. Because I just... I'll steal good from you that God wanted me to do because I just don't want to do you good today. Oh, I steal. And I would think that maybe you do too. Ephesians 4 says, Speak the truth in love. Psalm 34 says, Keep your tongue from speaking evil and lies. Philippians 2 says, Do all things without complaining and arguing. James 4 says, speak evil of no one. That includes the leaders of Congress and the man that speaks in the, sits in the White House. Speak evil of no one. Proverbs 12 says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And Proverbs 18 says that the words of the wise bring healing, but the words of fools are like being thrust through with a sword. Proverbs 29 says there's more hope for a fool than for one that speaks hastily. And Proverbs 16 says that evil people speak gossip. James 1 says be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says that we should respect those that God has placed in authority over us. Who's got Psalm 31? 31, 1 through 5. To you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not ever let me be put to shame. For your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Help me out of the net that is hidden to me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Thank you. I want to give you a chance, just in, the, just in your seat right now, to bow your heads. The band's going to play a song. If you want to sing along, you sing. But what I hope you would do is take a moment, and if God has spoken to you about something that's been mentioned, we're going to do this again in just a minute. We're going to repeat the process. But if God's spoken to you about any of those uh, sins that I've mentioned, do business with him. Just say, God, I'm guilty. I did that. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? Thank you for forgiving me. I accept your forgiveness. I love you. Use your own words. There's no right way to say that or do that. God's not looking for words. He's looking for hearts. Right? Take a moment. Do business with God while the band sings. How about our hearts? 
unforgiveness. Stubbornness. Independence. Rebellion. Pride. Fear. Greed. Envy. Anger. Discontentedness. Ungrateful. Ingratitude. Unbelief. Deception. Quarreling. Selfish. Indifferent. Impure motives. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Every one of those. It's on my tombstone. Every one of those. Ephesians 5 says, Love your wife as Jesus loves the church and honor your husband as the church should honor Jesus. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Psalm 37 says, Fear not. James 1 says that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Romans 14 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And Matthew 15 says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far away. How about sins related to my time, my possessions, my wealth? And my relationships. Living for myself. You know that's the number one sin that Paul mentions. And all of the sins that he mentions in Romans. All the sins that Paul mentions in Romans. And there's some bad ones. You know the number one sin that Paul says alienates us from God. Is the sin of just living for myself. Not praying. Not reading my Bible. Greed. Idolatry. Showing no mercy. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Flee from loving idols. Matthew 7 says, Treat others as you want to be treated. 1 Timothy 6 says, Godliness and contentment bring great gain. Nehemiah 13 says, Not it's a sin when we do not give honor and blessing to help to those who deserve it. First John 3 says that if we have wealth and see someone in need and do not help, how can the love of God be within us? Matthew 22 says, Love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not impatient, it's not unkind, it's not jealous or boastful or proud. Love is not rude or demanding or irritable. Love holds no grudges, it's not glad when injustice is done, but it is glad when truth 
wins out. True love never gives up. It never loses faith. It always hopes. And it endures all things. The band's going to play another song. If God's spoken to you about a specific, remember, specific, He will never say you're a bad husband. He'll say you snapped at your wife last night. Trust me, I know He does that because He tells me quite often. Okay? Same with you being a parent or any other area of your life. God's speaking to you about something specific. Do business with him right now as the band. The band's going to play one more song. Um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper while they're playing. Um, there are people in this room that I believe are doing business with God. So when you're through, And you feel like you're leaving here today and you and God are right. You're tight. You're good. All is well. It is good with my soul. It is well with my soul. I think I'm supposed to say. It is well with my soul. Then you come and you eat bread and you drink wine or juice. And then, I mean this with all due respect, get out. Go out in the hall. Don't, don't chat in here, please. Don't, don't rob someone else of the opportunity to, to continue to do business with God. Okay? When you're through, things are good, it's well with your soul, come eat and drink that which we believe, we hope, we have faith in, makes our confession and God's forgiveness work. My confessing sin and asking for forgiveness with no basis is meaningless. But we believe that the death of Jesus provides favor with God, forgiveness from God, rightness with God. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, For Christ has once suffered for sins, the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's me. Why? Why did the just die for the unjust? That he might bring us to God. We can go into God's presence and jump in his lap and say, Dad, it's me. And I can have confidence that the response of my father is going to be, Yay. Yay. Why? Because Jesus suffered and died. So we eat and drink to declare our belief that that is true and to give thanks for what Jesus did for us. And so as the band plays, you come or you, you do business. But when you're through, you come and you eat and you drink and remember and give thanks. And then go out in the hall if you would. Okay? We'll be dismissed. That's the way we'll be dismissed today. Lord Jesus... I don't think there's a more precious gift in the Bible than the gift of confession. We don't have to do penance. 
We don't have to beat ourselves on the back with whips. We don't have to give money. We don't have to do good deeds. We don't have to say 50,000 little uh, uh, phrases. Um, we don't have to wail and rip out our hair and rend our garments and throw dust on our heads. That's not what it's about. That's not what you care about. We don't have to offer the sacrifices of bulls and goats. Our forgiveness has been provided. And you created for confession because you died on the cross for us. And you created for confession not to provide our forgiveness. But so that we could have the confidence that we have been forgiven. And all is well with you. You smile on us. You're proud of us. You delight in us. May that be the ultimate result of our gathering together today. So we come to you. We enter boldly before your throne of grace. We ask you to help us to focus on the things that we have done that have made you sad. And have made us ashamed of ourselves. We ask you to forgive us. And then we come and we eat and we drink. And we declare our faith in your death on the cross. So that we could be brought near God. Thank you for that. We bless you. Amen.